Welcome to episode four of the Blood and Tacos audio series. I'm your host, Sean the Pipes Norris. In this edition, we present the story Texas Grad from Max Auger's Battleground USSA series as discovered by Christopher Blair. Christopher Blair found this Reagan-era classic at the Coos Bay Swap Meet on the coast of Oregon. Even among survivalist training manuals, laser tag accessories, and tarnished throwing stars, the embossed mushroom cloud and hammer and sickle on its cover were hard to miss. Very little is known about the author Max Auger. We do know that this is his first printed effort and a prime example of the 80s post-apocalyptic subgenre of men's adventure. Texas Grad by Max Auger as discovered by Christopher Blair. That sign's in Russian. At first, Captain Mike McCreary thought the binoculars were playing tricks on him. He pressed himself further into the rich Texas soil and leaned forward into the dry grass like a crouching lion. He blinked and looked again. It was too much to take in. Less than a mile away lay his hometown, its neat, clean buildings untouched by the Russian and Chinese death that had streaked in a year before. In fact, the town looked just the way it did when he'd left Sonny here to be safe. There it was, just west of the school, the little house they'd bought with his promotion pay. Sonny was in there, waiting for him, but thinking he was dead. Every fiber of his body wanted to run to her, to tell her that he'd survived, but his military training told him to stay put. The farms and fields encircling the town of Wrangler Plains looked like a pale green quilt. He saw the workers and tractors and clouds of dust working together to bring in the harvest, the familiar motions of bending and lifting, of wiping honest sweat from an honest man's brow. He knew that his childhood friends were down there, the ones who'd stayed home, just a few minutes sprint from the gentle rise where he now lay. If not for the sign, printed on a bright piece of plywood planted on the shoulder of Highway 27, in bright red letters. Dobro Pajavalat Narangler Panyami Tekasa Naselenye 1845 and printed in smaller letters, Skoro Budet Perimenoven Rebotnika Pulia Kaktolko Nashi Tovarishi Osvoboditsaya Viichumi Iserza Otgneti Capitala. McCreary handed the binoculars to Specialist Charles Whitefeather, crouched beside him like one of his Comanche ancestors stalking a buffalo. Whitefeather shook his head politely. No thank you, Captain. McCreary cursed his insensitivity. Of course Whitefeather wouldn't need his binoculars, not with his hunter's eyes. Instead, he handed them to Private Billy Leroy to his left. Next to Leroy, Specialist Brad Hawker, the sniper, took it all in through his scope. I don't understand it, Cap, Leroy said. Why are all them R's backward? I may not be no college boy, but I know when letters ain't right. That's Russian writing private, McCreary said. It looks a little like ours, but it ain't. Whitefeather hit the dirt next to McCreary. Tanks, he hissed. McCreary grabbed the binoculars from Leroy, just as Hawker muttered, 
Five of them. No, six. No, seven. To the right of the church, off the main drag. Son of a bitch. Seven tanks were rolling across Hank Steinhoff's alfalfa field. Suddenly, they stopped about 50 feet from the First Church of Christ, a row of fat iron turtles. In unison, their turrets began to swing. Even a mile away, the squad could feel the tank's metal rumbling in their bellies. This doesn't make sense, McCreary muttered. The Reds weren't supposed to be this far north. Intel said we stopped them at San Antone. Those tanks are huge, Whitefeather said. I ain't seen nothing like that this close. Not even doing black ops in Europe. I feel an ill wind blowing, Captain. He paused, then added, This is bad medicine. They all knew the truth. Only Leroy, as always, clung to the bright side. Maybe their PT-76 is on a scout and run. We have to get back. Tell General Pierce that the Russians are coming. They're not 76s, McCreary said. The dread in his voice was thicker than Texas tea. They're not scouts. Those are T-80s. Seven T-80 main battle tanks. The Russians aren't coming. He ran his hands through his thick black hair. They're already here. McCreary looked at Whitefeather. The big Comanche had closed his eyes, smelling the breeze coming in from town. What secrets did the air hold? It was best not to ask Whitefeather when he went to that other place. Hawker, McCreary said. You speak some Russian. What does that sign say? Welcome. Welcome to uh, Wrangler Plains, Texas. Hawker recited. Population, 1845. McCreary felt a stab of annoyance. He didn't need some grunt with a Russian grandmother to tell him the population of his hometown. It was 1845, same as the date Texas joined the late great United States. McCreary swung his binoculars back to the tanks, parked close to the church where he'd married Sonny Somerville. There, mere feet from the menacing T-80s, were the front steps where he'd worn his dress blues and held Sonny's hand next to Pastor Joe. Hawker continued, And the rest of it says, soon to be renamed Fertile Worker... Fertile Worker something. Oh, Fields. Fertile Worker Fields. McCreary squeezed the binoculars when he saw the distant form of Pastor Joe. The reverend sprinted down the steps and ran toward the tanks, waving his hands. The hatch on one of the turrets popped open. A gray-suited Russian tanker appeared. The Russian lifted his arm. It held a pistol. Renamed, as soon as our comrades free themselves. McCreary watched Pastor Joe, unafraid, stopped shy of the lead tank. He held something up in his hands. McCreary couldn't make it out, but he knew he held a Bible. The same one that he and Sonny had laid their hands on to become man and wife. But as blessed as it was, no Bible could stomp a bullet. The Russian tanker fired his pistol. Whitefeather whispered something sacred and sad in his own language. Free themselves in their minds and hearts from capitalist oppression. 
as if on cue, the tanks fired over Pastor Joe's crumpled body. Licks of orange erupted from their barrels. The church exploded silently, slats of pure white wood spinning in godless flame. Three seconds later, the sound arrived at Lone Star Tactical Unit 1 and shook them to their very souls. McCreary slept the fitful sleep of a fighting man. He dreamed, as he always did, about the week before the attack. He'd known something was afoot. Troop movements in East Germany, Chinese maneuvers in the Formosa Strait, Soviet maneuvers near Turkey, practice amphibious landings in Egypt just miles from the Israeli coast. He hadn't talked to Sonny in three weeks. Command had canceled all leave, and McCreary hadn't been out of Silo J-47 long enough to make a single phone call. Not that he'd have been able to anyway, with everything locked down. Hours in the terminal he shared with Lieutenant Jansen. As Jansen blabbed once more about the whole thing being a communist plea for attention, the squawker had jolted them out of their routine. Juliet! Juliet 4-7! Priority message, Charlie! He and Jansen had sprung into action, confirming the missile codes. They had just inserted the keys when their station, buried 200 feet under the frozen North Dakota plains, began to rock and shimmy. The lights flickered. Surely they had seconds to live. All thoughts of conscience and doubt were swept away as he and Jansen turned their keys. On their command, in silos buried all around them, five Minuteman threes breathed dragon fire and arced into the sky, bound for glory. They're away! Jansen yelled. That's what you get for stabbing us in the back! He turned to McCreary. It's been an honor serving with you, Captain. Then the lights went out and the bunker shook. A great roaring rip in the walls and ceiling, the smell of coal and earth. Everything around them collapsed. Somewhere out there, the world exploded and North Dakota and America herself was bathed in an unholy nuclear fire. The Chinese, McCreary later learned, had initiated the plan's first phase, introducing a program into the Defense Department's computers that replicated itself like a disease, almost like a computerized virus. And like a virus, it had spread over the newly installed internetwork that the technocrats had insisted would keep America safe. Instead, their newfangled computers had given the communists their gateway. Linked and spreading the contagion, every weapon that carried a nuclear tip, from bombers to missiles, was rendered inoperable. Some Asian wiseacre had added the final indignity. Whenever a command was given to launch a plane or a missile, the intercom played a tinny alien tune that only a handful of the crews recognized as the Chinese national anthem. Then the Chinese launched Phase 2, sending their 50 Long March rockets high over the United States to detonate 200 miles up. The explosions fried every electronic circuit in the country. The Chinese hadn't tried to flatten the cities and the missile silos. That part of the plan had been the Russians' job. 
For reasons that he never figured out, only McCreary's silo, representing just five missiles out of thousands, had managed to go aloft that day. Whether they reached their targets, McCreary doubted he would ever know. But the dreams only touched on that part of the story. Whenever he slept, his dreams always eventually led to Sunny, her long, honey-colored hair, her narrow waist, her virtuous smile, her delicate hands that could squeeze a trigger and pick off a jackrabbit at a hundred yards. It was Sonny, the cheerleader who had waited for him after football games. Sonny, who wore that frilly skirt, who loved him enough to let his hands roam. Mmm, I love you, Mike. But loved God and her virtues enough to make him wait. <laughs> Not until we're married, Mike. Sonny, who wore his ring as he went into the Air Force pararescue. Jump, Mike! Sonny, who talked him through it on the phone after he told her he'd washed out. It's okay, Mike. Sonny, who told him to come home and marry her. I do, Mike. Sonny, who didn't get mad after their honeymoon to Corpus Christi. Mm, oh, Mike. When the Air Force decided that they still owned him and stuck him in the ground in North Dakota. And of course, it had been Sonny who compelled him to claw his way out of a crooked elevator shaft and to survive everything afterward. Get your ass out of there, Mike! General Pierce studied the reports on the card table he'd been using as a desk since Omaha. Sweltering in the general's tent, McCreary stood at attention while his men... Leroy, Whitefeather, and Hawker stood behind him. This report you filed, Pierce said. It doesn't make sense. The 1st Cav and the rest of 3 Corps stopped the Russians and Mexicans at San Antonio. How do we know for sure, General? Leroy blurted out. We've had spotty radio traffic from that sector since last week. McCreary winced. Leroy had never learned when to shut it. I don't remember asking you a thing, Private, the General barked. He shot to his feet and glared at McCreary. Once again, an Air Force flyboy and his ragtag squad of enlistees are trying to tell me how to link up with three corps. With all due respect, General, McCreary began, this ragtag squad of enlistees and I have been the eyes and ears of this brigade since Omaha. We're telling you what we saw. An entire Russian tank battalion has taken over my town. I need to go back there. No, the general said. We can't risk it. Can't risk it? We need intel. The general waved his hand over the card table. We have intel. You've done your job. No need to put your squad and the rest of us at risk. So far, the Russians don't know our exact location. We've tied up their air assets over New Mexico, which is why they haven't spotted us. You don't know that. McCreary, if these commies catch you, they'll know we're moving south with brigade strength. At the very least, we wait for the 101st. Their radios are working. They're in Mississippi and heading this way. General, if I may be so bold, McCreary began. No, that's my decision, Pierce said. I'm sorry about the Russians in your town, Captain. I am, he added with a soft tone that did nothing to assuage McCreary's worst fears. They may be godless cowards, but I'm sure your wife is alive. You'll see her soon. Just be patient. General, please. D. 
Dismissed. The four men stood abruptly at attention and in unison turned and banged through the door into the hot Texas sun. The four of them, McCreary, Whitefeather, Hawker, and Leroy, entered their tent and dropped their gear on their bunks. McCreary fumed. He had made certain assumptions on returning from their scouting run. Certainly after reading their report, Pierce would authorize another trip south. But he hadn't. Usually, McCreary respected the old man's caution. It had held them at the Missouri River just before a squad of Russian-made Mexican hind helicopters had swooped in and wiped out the 173rd, waiting to rendezvous on the other side. The general's instincts had kept 5,000 men from leaving what remained of Lincoln, Kansas, just avoiding the swarm of radioactive twisters south of Wichita Falls. But now, the general was being too cautious. McCreary and his men were the whiskers of a lion that was meant to pounce, not cower in a scrub forest west of Waco. Behind McCreary, Hawker disassembled his rifle. I'm sure she's all right, he said. You know it, Cap. Leroy chimed in. That sonny of yours sounds tough as nails. Don't you worry about all the things them Russians do to women folk whenever they take over. That's enough, Private. Whitefeather barked with uncharacteristic ferocity. The dreamcatcher above his head swayed from his voice. But McCreary heard none of this. His complete focus was on his bunk. Lying on his bunk was a sheet of paper. A string of words formed in a row, neatly typewritten. In Russian. Hawker, McCreary said in a voice he barely heard in his own ears. I need you to read something for me. McCreary and his men hunkered behind the same rise where they'd spied Wrangler planes the day before. Fall was coming, and the faint trace of their breath rose above them in the chill dawn air. You men don't have to be here, McCreary said. We're defying orders. If you double-time it back to base, they might not notice you're gone. Too late now, Captain, Hawker said. You know we'd follow you to hell and back. That's right, Cap, Leroy said. Ain't no commie bastards gonna rape your town, no sir. Whitefeather breathed a patient sigh. Don't worry about your wife, Captain. We're on my former hunting grounds now. The Earth speaks to me. The Great Spirit will keep her safe. McCreary was moved beyond words, but it wasn't time for emotion. They had a job to do to rescue Sonny, and God willing, to kill some Ivans in the process. Captain. Hawker hissed, squinting through his scope. A work detail. Ten. No, twenty civvies. McCreary raised his binoculars. A couple dozen people walked out to build Dolan's wheat field. They carried scythes and hoes, old-fashioned tools. McCreary thought he recognized a couple of them. There was Ida Grange, who'd owned the diner on Route 283. She wore a plain gray dress, the likes of which McCreary had never seen. And Bill Dolan himself, dressed as strangely in drab clothes, like something out of Fiddler on the Roof. He wore a wool cap. McCreary could only make out a faint red shape, front and center of the cap, a star. Captain, Whitefeather said, squinting into the distance. Company. McCreary moved the binoculars back and forth. Where? Five guards. 
Hawker said. To the right, see him? Mexicans. And two Russians with him. Sure enough, a squad of five Mexican soldiers, unshaven, their fatigues crumpled and disheveled, came into view. Fifty yards away stood a pair of Russian privates, distinguished by their light blue shirts, shouldering their AKs, smoking cigarettes, and laughing. Pravda! Borscht! Solzhenitsyn! <laughs> Backstabbers! Leroy muttered. Let's move into position, McCreary said. Whitefeather, you and Leroy circle around. You handle the Mexicans. Hawker and I'll take out the Russians. I don't know, Hawker said. It's not the objective. If we shoot and miss... Then don't miss, Whitefeather said. When the Mexicans start to dance, sir, that'll be your cue. The big Indian and Leroy were already moving through the tall grass like a couple of leopards. McCreary and Hawker had plenty of cover as they moved. A rusted combine, three boulders, a pump house. Before too long, they crouched unseen only five yards from the Russians who chatted away in their dirty, oily language. Stalingrad! Yet! Glasnost! <laughs> Beyond them, McCreary could see the Mexican guards lounging next to their truck. One had his hat down over his eyes. The others leered at a group of teenage girls. The biggest soldier with a huge black mustache catcalled one of the girls in Spanish. She didn't look up, only hoed the ground faster. McCreary raised his M-16 and aimed it at the Russian on the left. Hawker had his rifle up, peering unnecessarily through the sight. At this range, Hawker would have been automatic with a blindfold. Maybe he was just being cautious. The big soldier moved toward the girl. Senorita, McCreary heard him say. Eres hermosa, venir aquí. His last words. The soldier's head silently exploded. The sound arrived a half second later. The Russians jerked to attention like a startled antelope. Then everything happened fast. The big Mexican fell to the ground like a headless sack of tamales. His men jumped to their feet. Two of them grabbed for their rifles, then began their silent, jiggling dance of death. The remaining two ran toward town. McCreary drew a bead on the nearest Russian's chest and fired. The M-16 kicked against his shoulder with a reassuring thump. The Ruski was dead before he hit the ground. A millisecond later, Hawker fired at the Russian on the right and missed. The scrub oak tree behind the Russian split in two. Hawker's Russian looked around with big, cowardly eyes. He could see neither McCreary nor Hawker and turned to run. God damn it, Hawker, McCreary thought. He raised his rifle and dropped the Russian with a single shot to the back of his head. McCreary felt the slightest tug of sadness. The Russian kid had looked all of 19 and now he lay dead in the dirt with the front of his head replaced with an exit wound. McCreary tried to quash any regret. 
They invaded my home, not just my country. The commies are in my hometown. Sorry, Ivan. You had to die. Across the field, Whitefeather and Leroy chased down the remaining Mexicans. Leroy tackled the slower one and drove his ranger's knife into the back of his head. He jiggled in the dirt like a beetle in some sadistic kid's bug collection. Whitefeather had caught the other one. McCreary, far out of earshot, knew what was happening. The big Comanche was drawing his knife across the Mexican's throat, but whispering words of a hunter's respect into his ear as blood flowed from his body like a sacred stream. Oh, oh. I'm sorry, sir, Hawker said. He looked seriously dejected. I've never missed in my life. Too close quarters, I guess, but that's no excuse. McCreary patted him on the shoulder. It's all right, I, I never make mistakes, you know. You're a good man, Captain McCreary, Hawker said softly. I won't let you down again. I know you won't, McCreary said. Let's join the others. Whitefeather and Leroy were already at the girls. It's all right, Whitefeather said to the tallest one. We're Americans, like you. That's right, miss, Leroy said. Head up that road. There's an American base not ten miles away. They'll take you in and keep you safe. You'll see. Here came Bill Dolan running toward them with Ida Grange on his heels, holding her skirt up from the ground. They dropped their tools and looked relieved to see them. Actually, that wasn't right. They didn't look relieved. They looked scared. That wasn't right either. They looked angry. Dolan and Ida yelled incomprehensibly. Leroy tried to calm them. McCreary arrived at the group. Sure enough, that was a red star on Dolan's cap. And why was Dolan yelling at them in Russian? Stovi Delali! Dolan cried out. Eti soldati bali nashi drusia. V ushajno banditi. This doesn't make any sense, Whitefeather said, drying his knife on his fatigues. Just then, fifty Russian soldiers rose from the summer wheat surrounding them. Each soldier brandished an AK-47. The rifle's magazines curled toward McCreary's team like black fangs. A faint breeze blew, hissing through the grain menacingly. McCreary felt awash in an ocean of dread. Even the wheat had turned against them. Captain McCreary, an accented voice said from behind a tree. They all turned. Out stepped a tall Russian officer. He wore plain, pressed olive-colored combat fatigues. Only the three pale stars on his shoulders betrayed his rank. Thank you for joining us on such a fine morning as this. Who the hell are you? Leroy asked. I am General Yuri Azov of the Soviet Army, the general said. And you'll do well to check your tone with a superior officer, Private Leroy of Lewisburg, West Virginia. How do you know my name? Leroy asked. The general ignored him. McCreary dropped his M-16 on the ground as the general and two soldiers approached. He motioned to the others to do the same. They obeyed, except for Hawker who kept his sniper's rifle slung over his shoulder. Good old Hawker. 
McCreary thought. A sniper to his dying day. All I know is not important, the Russian general said. Not nearly as important as the honors we will bestow upon Lieutenant Hokarov of the KGB. The sniper that McCreary had known as Hawker clicked his heels, stood at attention, and gave the general a crisp salute. This is the end of part one of Texas Grad from the Battleground USSA series by Max Auger, as discovered by Christopher Blair. Please turn this tape to side two. Next week on Battleground USSA. Lieutenant Hokarov, the general said, Thank you for bringing Captain McCreary to enjoy the benefits of our workers' paradise. I am happy to do my duty for the motherland. Hawker. God damn it, Hawker. I've known all about you for years, Azov said, pulling an olive-colored folder off his desk and opening it. I followed your career and your personal life. I was amazed at the similarities of our ambitions, of our character, and most importantly the fact that our wives appeared so identical. What's that supposed to mean? We shall deal with that soon enough. This episode of the Blood and Tacos audio series was produced by John Pospisil. Theme music also by John Pospisil. Additional voices provided by Christopher Blair, Matt Green, Gabby Tanaka, Lilith Pospisil, and Polly Pospisil. And I'm your director and host, Sean the Pipes Norris. Copyright 2013, Johnny Shaw, Creative Guy Publishing, Hawks Pipes, and LZP Productions. We'll see you next time on... Oh,